hesitant, uh, not on the relational side, but more on the actual skiing side, uh, because she had not skied in like 15 years. And so she was a little hesitant on, am I going to remember how to do it? Is it going to come back to me, or am I going to have to fall and, and hurt myself a lot to learn again along the way? And she also was a college athlete, graduated a few years ago, and so had reconstructive surgery on both ankles after the fact. So she's also kind of wondering, from a physical side, can my body withstand the grind of skiing? And so uh, we went out there, and she did awesome. I mean, started the thing, confident, did great, uh, held her own, had fun. It was just a, a great time up until the very last day, the very last run. And so uh, we're about eight of us going down, and you kind of get to this junction where you can take multiple trails. And so we're kind of like, hey, you know, where do we want to go? And most of us, you know, say, hey, let's take this, uh, this blue route, intermediate, you know, kind of steep grade, but not too crazy, but, you know, challenging enough that my sister said, you know, uh, you guys can go take the blue down. We'll meet at the bottom. Me, me and my husband, we're going to take the green and just kind of the easier, you know, I'm tired. I'm not really excited about, like, having to work really hard. My legs are tired after multiple days of skiing, so uh, we'll just meet you guys at the bottom. Cool, great. We'll see you there. We take off. They take off. And so we get to the bottom quicker than they do, as expected, and uh, we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And after a few minutes of waiting, we're kind of thinking, I feel like we should be seeing them about now. And so we called them just to see maybe the trail took them off on a different you know, part of the mountain, and so we've got to just meet up, but they don't answer the phone. And so 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes goes by, and at this point it's kind of like, well, not, not just where are they, but are they okay? I mean, what's going on? But we obviously can't you know, ski up the mountain, although we'd witnessed people actually skiing up the mountain while we were there. I, I don't understand it. If you know this, please come and tell me why you would ski up when you can ski down. There are lifts for the going up. But we're, we're still waiting and wondering, well, I mean, do we call like, you know, the ski patrol? Do we have to you know, do something? And just about the time we were really getting nervous, we see the two of them coming towards us. And I can immediately tell from my sister's face, things are not good. It's that face that makes you realize that something so terrible has happened that you want to ask, what in the world happened? But it's the face that you, if you ask what in the world happened, you will immediately be attacked for asking that question. And so I've asked that question plenty of times over the years because I'm a sibling and that's you antagonize, that's what you do. But at this point, I realized probably not the wisest thing to ask her. So we all kind of are thinking the same thing, like, what in the world? We can't ask, so let's just go on. So we start walking away and she ends up going to the restroom. And so we all quickly say to her husband, what, what happened to you guys up there? And he said, well, we took the green and went away down from you guys and we got to this this orange barricade that, that kept us from going down that trail anymore because they were having some competition. So the only other way down was down this black trail, which is the expert level, super steep, super dangerous, super terrifying if you've ever been to a spot of seeing a trail that looks more difficult than what you can do. And so just from the mental aspect, my sister was completely shut down, but then they had to get down. So she and you know, her husband kind of scooted and fell and rolled and, you know, got down the mountain slowly, but got down to say, I hate life with her face. And so everything that was going so well, so great, at that point completely flipped upside down and she was done with skiing because we were leaving, but also because she didn't want to do any more of it. And, and so the experience of kind of everything going great and then suddenly taking a turn for the worse happens to the guys that were following in the book of Acts as 
Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are journeying to Philippi, and they arrive there, and they just have some incredible, awesome things go on. They, they encounter this group of women that are God-fearing women that don't know Jesus, that they share the gospel with them, and God opens one woman's heart named Lydia. She receives the gospel. She responds to the gospel. She's you know, uh, telling her friends about the gospel. She's, her family's hearing it. They're all baptized together. She's welcoming them into their home with, using her gifts, all these great things that are going on. And then a couple of short days later, Paul and, and the guys are, are walking around preaching the gospel, and, and this demon-possessed, this uh, spirit of divination inside this slave girl is, is following the guys and, and saying some things that are clouding the message that they're, they're sharing about Jesus. And after a few days, Paul just gets annoyed and fed up and says, get out of her. He just casts the demon out. Demon's gone you know, annoyance gone, but the problem is also that the slave girl's owners, their moneymaker is gone. That, that people would come to this slave girl to, you know, get told about the future. Now there's no more reason to come to this person, so now their income, their revenue is taken away, and they are very upset about that. And so they take the guys, and they take them before the magistrates, and they make some false accusations and some things just to stir up the crowd so that the crowd actually beats Paul and Silas, these innocent men who didn't do anything unlawfully, beat them with rods until they're bleeding and bruised. And then the magistrates throw them off into prison. Again, unlawfully, without a trial, without any evidence, just throw them into prison. And that's where we're going to pick up today's story. So if you've got your Bible... You can open up to Acts chapter 16. It's going to be on page 601 if you have a Mosaic Blue Bible, if you got that on your way in. Otherwise, in any other Bible, either handheld, tablet, or smartphone, will be after Acts 15, sequentially, 16 following 15. Sorry, Acts chapter 16, we'll go in verse 22, kind of recap where we ended last week. The crowd joined in attacking them, talking of Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, you got to understand that Paul and Silas at this point are in the prison at midnight, which is probably multiple hours that they've been in the prison. Uh, maybe six, maybe nine, maybe up to 12 hours that they've been in the prison. And, and in prison, obviously, whatever prison we're talking about, not a good place to be, not a desirable place, not a comfortable, luxurious place. Uh, but the prison back then would have been even more terrible because their feet would have been in stocks. They would have been sitting on the ground with their feet up in stocks and their hands chained to the wall walls above them. And so very uncomfortable, very painful for five minutes, let alone an hour, let alone six hours, let alone 12 hours. So, I mean, the, the pain experience they're experiencing is, is a terrible one. And I know what I would have been doing if at any point in this whole story was about me. I mean, by the time I was beaten, by the time I was unlawfully thrown into jail, by the time I was sitting there in terrible pain, I would have said, God, where are you? You know, I'm shocked that I'm out living on mission, proclaiming your gospel, and here I am imprisoned unjustly. Or, or God, you know, why? I don't understand. It seems that this is counter to your character. What in the world is going on? Or, or boo-hoo, look at me. I'm a victim. I don't deserve this. I, I should be out there because it's unfair that I'm in here. And 
yet look at Paul and Silas, these you know, spiritual holy men, and what are they doing at midnight? Not just an hour after they've been there, but after a while has passed. They're singing hymns, praising God. I guarantee that their prayers weren't, God, please get us out of here, if they're singing hymns. Hymns are, are to glory God, and so their prayers were probably God. However this plays out, whatever your purpose, God, may you get glory from us being in this circumstance. And so I'm sure the, the other prisoners, as soon as these guys walked in and were praying and singing, were getting mocked left and right. We're getting ridiculed. Yeah, keep singing to your God who put you in prison? Yeah, that sounds like a great God. I'm going to go keep going to Zeus. Uh, or, you know, wow, the God that you're singing to that can't even change your circumstance. I mean, you've been singing to him for four hours now. You're still here. That's the God that you serve? Sounds kind of lame to me. But hour by hour by hour, these men are continuing to trust, continuing to rejoice in the Lord. And I can imagine that, that there's a shift in those prisoners after a certain point where they go from ridiculing and mocking to, to kind of bewildered and kind of wondering, who, who are these guys? What, what makes them so different? And by midnight, I'm sure that many were, were captivated by these men, by their hearts and trust and love for the Lord, despite their circumstances. And so Paul and Timothy singing and praying in the stillness of night at midnight, the town of Philippi, quiet, you know, sleeping, most of the prisoners trying to sleep and rest amidst the pain of their bodies being chained and in stocks, and the quiet singing and praying going on. It's suddenly interrupted by a loud noise. We see in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, this is the part in the story that we love as Christians. We're like, yes, God comes through. Like, this is where, you know, the white horse comes riding in with the knight on it. This is God. You know, these guys that are unlawfully, unjustly thrown in prison that don't deserve this, that should be, you know, able to be out there continuing their mission for God, that God causes this miraculous earthquake to happen just in the moments that they're in jail, singing and praying and trusting in him, breaking open the doors, taking all of the chains off, allowing for just a nice, easy escape route to freedom. I mean, clearly God has ordained this to get Paul and Silas out of there so that they can enjoy their freedom and so that they can continue preaching the gospel, demonstrating the gospel to the town of Philippi and beyond. So that's obviously what's going to be happening here. And so as the earthquake happens, it, it jolts the, the jailer awake, and he sees firstly the wide open jail doors. Now a jailer doesn't even have to go explore into the jail cell wondering, maybe they're still here. He knows. You see an open door? Prisoners ain't going to be there. They're gone. At the first sign of freedom, they're leaving. And so the jailer, realizing that the prisoners are gone, knows that he is accountable for those prisoners, meaning that if a prisoner ever escapes in the Roman Empire, the jailer was held responsible to the point of death. So he would have been executed, most likely, for these prisoners escaping. So in that moment, as he is awoken, seeing the jail cell, knowing that it is empty because it's a wide-open door, knowing that he's going to be held punishable by death, he decides it would be better to take my own life than to die by the sword of the Roman Empire and have the dishonor of not doing my duty, not fulfilling my duty. 
And, and so I can only imagine the, the mental state that the jailer must have been in to, to decide, I'm going to take my own life. And, and I'm going to, to take my sword. And actually, the act of taking his own life was underway. I mean, at any point along that, mentally, for someone to get to that point, you know, just can't imagine how distraught one would be. And so he's literally about to impale himself, ending his life because it would be better than the alternative when something utterly shocking happens. In verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. The the jailer in the moment where he's about to die, hears Paul cry out, hey, Hey, we're all here. Don't don't take your life. Put the sword down. We're all here. And again, shock and confusion would be going on in this jailer's mind as he's thinking, why why are they still here? The jail cell's open. They they would have run out. And so again, the, the point of deciding to take his life and being in the act of taking his life suddenly completely stopped and reversed to realizing, wait, the, the prisoners are here. That means I'm not punishable by death which means I don't have to take my life. And again, the, the swing of emotions in that moment, I can't even imagine what that was like. And so this jailer, again, distraught, overwhelmed, confused, excited, scared, all of those emotions going on inside of him falls down before Paul and Silas. And he asks Paul and Silas the most important question that can ever be asked Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer's question in that moment of being that close to death and now realizing that he no longer is going to die by his own sword or the Roman sword, he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have the life that you have, the hope that you have? What what is it beyond myself I know that I've got to figure out or do or solve? And in that moment, the Spirit of God reveals, opens this guy's heart to seeing that he is in desperate need of rescue. Not rescue from the sword, not rescue from dying a physical death because he just escaped physical death. He's not needing physical help. He's recognizing there is a need far beyond his physical life. And he is crying out for help. Because you know, if you're on a cruise boat that is safely cruising through the Caribbean, you're probably not crying out for help. If anything, you're saying, hey, I'll take another you know, drink over here at the pool. This is great. But if you are on a ship that is crashed and burning and sinking with no other boats around and no land in sight, you are screaming for help because you know how desperate you are for help, that you're helpless on your own. And this jailer realizes that and asks these guys, what must I do to be saved? And the guys respond with the the only true answer as revealed by the Spirit of God. And they say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Paul and, and Silas say, hey, the shocking news and the simplicity of the gospel is this, that, that you can have right relationship with God you can have eternal and abundant life starting right now, not when you die, but right now, as you trust in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, death, and resurrection, that that rescue that you realize you need in your soul 
he's able to achieve for you by the free gift of what he's done on the cross for you. And the jailer hears this great news and says, man, I need my family to hear this. Come, come, let's tell them this great news. And so the guys unpack the gospel to not only the jailer, but also to his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into the, his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. That this jailer we see very similarly to Lydia. The, the gospel is received by the jailer, and the, the jailer responds to the gospel. We see the power of the gospel transforming this man's life who was probably a stale, crusty, cruel jailer, suddenly as he encounters Jesus, has his heart transformed as he realizes with compassion, these men are in need of, of help. They're hurting. They've got these wounds. And so he, he washes their bloody wounds, a, a gross thing. And yet with, with Jesus changing his heart, something he is willing and eager to do for them. He, he takes them into his home at, at the risk of himself and he feeds them. He's telling his family about the gospel. He's being baptized to publicly identify with following Jesus and that he has been purified by the work of Christ alone. This is a changed man. And we see this story, and it's, it's so awesome. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to see the power of the gospel at work. And the last piece of this scene that is described to us is that the jailer was rejoicing. And he wasn't rejoicing in the fact that, uh, that Paul and Silas and the other prisoners didn't run out when they had the chance. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that he hadn't fallen on his sword and taken his own life. He was rejoicing in something much bigger. He was rejoicing in the fact that he had believed in God, that he had been rescued by Christ alone. And and all of, all of this amazing story that unfolds with the jailer, and I'm sure, you know, if we were to have the jailer's biography continue on, there would be untold other amazing and awesome things that happened. But even if, if this is all we knew about it, all of, all of what just happened there only was possible because of Paul laying down his personal freedoms. And if we kind of backtrack in the story, uh, Paul and Silas were again unjustly uh, pulled out of, the, uh, of, of uh, the, the place of prayer and thrown into the magistrates, beat by the crowd because they were kind of angry because they didn't really like what they were doing because it messed with some prophets. And yeah, they're Jews. Okay, let's, let's, let's take it out on them. But at any point in getting beat, any point at being thrown in jail, any point at being in jail, Paul could have just said, stop, I'm a Roman citizen. And everything would have stopped. Because just by being a Roman citizen, which Paul was, he was rightfully entitled to a fair judicial process, to a fair trial that would have caused all of those things to immediately stop, no questions asked. And yet, Paul does not at any point pull out the Roman citizen card. And, and while in prison, in this very uncomfortable, unknown future situation, being locked in the chains and in the stocks, miraculously, the doors open, the chains fall off. The last guy in between the door and freedom is taking his own life. I mean, this couldn't be a better example of God being faithful and providing a way out. And yet Paul stays right where he is. It is even that Paul runs out of the jail. He's praising God. He's worshiping. He's catching his breath and realizing, wait a minute, I might 
yeah, I think the Spirit of God actually wants me to go back to the jail. That's weird, but I think he's calling me back. Like, in the moment that the doors open wide, that freedom and, and safety and a lot more comfort are right there, Paul remains where he is, sensitive to the Spirit, keeping him there. Again, not knowing why, not knowing how that was going to play out. To all he knew, the jailer might have realized the prisoners were there and slashed them all and killed everybody because he thought that they had somehow caused the whole thing to happen. I mean, who knows how it could have played out? And yet Paul, faithful and obedient to the Spirit, remains there. Remains there because the Spirit of God has told him to stay there. And as we've journeyed with Paul, we've seen his sensitivity to the Spirit. We've seen his desire to follow the Spirit. That that he has followed the Spirit uh, no matter how the Spirit has led. In maybe odd or or difficult or unpredictable ways, wherever the Spirit of God has led, Paul has followed. And in some of those instances, it has led to some great cost, some great discomfort, um, some some great uh, challenges along the way. And yet, In each of those places, in each of those situations, Paul lays down his freedoms. And as a result of that, we see some incredibly big and eternal changes happen in others' lives because of his decision to lay down his freedom. Here's the the crazy thing about what Paul does. He, He does not allow the circumstances before him or the emotions that he's experiencing to dictate God's leading. And this is wholly different than what you and I do all of the time. Okay, I, I mean, and if, if you're not in this group, I need to talk to you. It's awesome. But here's, here's what we do so often. Okay, uh, We step into some new endeavor, some, some missional calling opportunity, um, some healthy, wise decision, some type of, of holy ambition. So we step into that. And as we're stepping into it, as things, we see things play out, if things are playing out the way we expect, if we're kind of being encouraged by it, if we're getting good feedback by others, if we're, if we're seeing good things happen, it's like, man, awesome, confirmation from God, like, I'm on the right track, sweet, love it, I'm going to keep going. But if we step into those same things, if we get some resistance, some, some challenges come our way, if we get some pushback by other people, we, we are very quick to say, oh, well, must be God closing the door. You know, where one door closes, another door opens. I'll just, you know, not go that way. I'll try something else. But when we look at Paul's life and we look at so many other people's lives in scripture, God definitely does move people and call people towards things that are encouraging, that are easy in a sense, that are, are fun and exciting. But then sometimes, I mean, he's telling Paul to stay in a prison. He's telling Paul to stay and get beaten. I mean, those are things that if God's closing doors, that's a door that I'm saying, yeah, not that one. That one's definitely not on the table. I need to go find another one. So change the situation. But Paul does not allow those circumstances before him to dictate how God is leading. He doesn't allow his emotions of, I'm so tired. This is so hard. It would be so much better if I could just do this differently to control him. But instead, He submits to the Spirit's leading, however odd, different, unexpected, or challenging it might be, because he trusts the Spirit of God and knows that there is something far greater at work than what he might be seeing or experiencing that is so worth it, no matter what is unfolding circumstantially or with his emotions. 
And, and when I look at Paul's life and the way that he responds in the Spirit, I mean, in step with the Spirit, obedient to the Spirit, again, not five minutes later, not five days later, not you know, convicted about, oh, I should have done that differently. Well, next time I will. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the moment. And I get jealous of that. I mean, I'm like, man, Paul, I want that. I want to be in step with the Spirit so much where I'm just able to know how to move and where to go and how to you know, go about things that it's immediate in step with God's leading. And so I want to know, you know, Paul, what's your secret? What's your recipe? What's your formula? How, how in the world would you be able to do this? Because it just seems so hard. And thankfully, we have some insight into to Paul's life, into Paul's, uh, the way God working inside of him as he writes several of the letters in the New Testament to different churches and people. And so we're able to see and hear from him on some of these things. So he writes in the letter of Philippians, a, a book to the a letter to the church in Philippi, where he's currently in jail. Later, he would write the book of Philippians. And he writes this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ Paul says, hey, compared to Jesus, everything else is like trash. I mean, literally like a piece of garbage that you would walk past, or if you're a good person, you'll put in the trash can because we like to have neat spaces. But it's comparatively just junk because Christ is the greatest treasure of all. And so Paul knew that no matter what I have, no matter what situation I could be in, no matter how great I might feel, I realize in light of Jesus, it's nothing. Later in chapter 4, he says this in verse 11, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That's like the, the famous, you know, scripture verse, you know, I can bench press 700 pounds because I know Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Little out of context, actually. Um, Paul, uh, some of you might be able to bench 700 pounds. Again, if you can do that, let me know in your program. But Paul is saying, man, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter how awful it is, no matter how great it is, no matter how low I am emotionally, no matter how high I am emotionally, Christ is my everything. He is sufficient. He is supreme. He drives me, and he drives me alone. So I don't turn to anything else to, to sway me or be my motivation or, or following, but I'm captivated and ruled by Christ and him alone. And then in Colossians chapter 3, he says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Paul writes that there is a a greater reality beyond just this world, beyond just the temporal space called earth. There is a far greater reality. And he says that our call is to fix our eyes on that, to be focused, having a gospel perspective in light of the the temporal, physical world that we're a part of. 
There was a movie made several years ago called The Truman Show. Uh, it starred Jim Carrey as the, the lead role. It's kind of a crossover role for him uh, from his normal, like, wacky, wild, weird comedies to kind of a serious drama role, which I never understand when you have a character pegged as a certain kind of character and then they try to completely switch because I only see them as the same character they always are. Out of context, it just doesn't work, but that's just me. And so in this movie, though, Truman is, uh, Jim Carrey is Truman, the main character of this movie, which is also, he's a main character of a television show, that he was born into a, a created television show that was all about him, except he just didn't know that he was the star of this show. So this elaborate Hollywood set is created to emulate, basically, the world. And, and all the people in it are all actors, and everything that happens to Truman is all scripted by a writer, because it's a TV show. And so Truman obviously lives his life thinking, this is life, this is normal, this is the world. But as he grows older, he, he kind of starts questioning some things and wondering, I feel like there, there's something more beyond just this experience here, beyond what I'm, I'm seeing and, and, and getting a chance to, to experience. And at, at the very end of the movie, he actually uh, is, is able to bump into the end of the set, into this television set um, of, it looks kind of like a cloud, and, and realizes something, something's off here. And he finds a door that opens and leads to the outside world, the real world, not just this television set. In that moment, he has this kind of you know, torn decision to make between staying inside this world that he's known so well, that he's experienced great comfort and safety because, again, the writers are protecting him. They don't want to kill off their character. They don't want him to get hurt. So everything is very safe and comfortable for him. So staying there or going out into this unknown world that, that could be scary, could be dangerous. It's unknown what it's like, but it just seems more real. It seems more true than what he was experiencing in that kind of make-believe world. Although it was real, it just didn't quite seem fully real and true. And so Truman chooses to exit that set and enter into the real world. And, and we live in a world, a real world, that is physical, that we bump into things that we see, taste, smell, touch, hear. All those things are real. It's not like we're in the Matrix and none of this is real. I mean, they're real stuff. But, but at the same time, with Jesus, we see the gospel produce in us a view that transcends and goes beyond just the here and now, just what's before us, just this kind of temporary, seemingly you know, insufficient, there's got to be more out there. And we know that with Jesus, that, that what's out there is the gospel, is a, a Christ-centered experience and perspective that true life is found not just in these things of this world, but, but in Jesus who transcends this world. And so Paul's call to us and, and encouragement through, through the Spirit is set your mind on things that are above. Don't be caught up in all of this stuff. But it's so hard. I mean, we live again in a physical world. It's real. I mean, we've got jobs, we've got families, we've got relationships, we've got to-do lists, emails, all of the stuff going on. And we've got our flesh that's pulling at our sinful desires to, to conform to the way the world works, to, to have the desires and feed what the world tells us to feed, pleasure and comfort and security and, and all of those things. So we're constantly fighting this, this kind of tension between, well, I know we're supposed to set our eyes on things above, and yet I'm caught up but with all all these distractions and things that I, I kind of do need to like 
be aware of and be invested in, but, but how do I manage the two different worlds simultaneously and differently? It just, it seems like it's overwhelming and I don't know how to do it. And so how does, how does Paul say and experience this? Because again, we see him living this out, not just saying, you know, hey, follow the Spirit as you have this eternal perspective, but we see him in the light of any circumstance, however hard it might be, responding to the Spirit despite of the circumstance and his emotions. And so when we look about how we can day by day, moment by moment, pursue following the Spirit and maintaining this eternal gospel-centered perspective, just like Paul did, it kind of begins with us realizing that we can't not do anything. Like, we can't just not try to be fixed and focused on the things of this world because our natural tendency is to go there. Our natural tendency is to protect ourselves, be self-driven, and be, you know, ruled by the things of this world and the things of our flesh apart from the Spirit of God. And so we must actively not just not do those things, but actively replace those things with truth. And so we must preach truth to ourselves in which preach the gospel to ourselves regularly, daily, hourly, to be renewed by the truth instead of being stuck in the lies, stuck in the deceit, stuck in the things that we get so easily entangled by that are meaningless, that are temporary, that have no eternal significance at all. And so Romans 12, 2 tells us, hey, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we would actually have our minds renewed by the truth of God, that we would go to truth, who is God himself, through his word, through his spirit, as encouraged by the community of God. And as we encounter truth, that we actually will be transformed, that we trust that by the power of God, we will be renewed into a, a perspective that is understanding and set on things above, not on things of this earth that we wouldn't be caught up and conformed with those things, but we would transcend and be focused on the gospel things, the things that matter to God. And again, this is, this is easier said than done, but it isn't so much us just kind of mustering up the strength and the, the remembrance of, okay, today as I go to work, maintain a, a fixed eye on the eternal. Just got just to remember, set your eyes on things above, don't focus on the world. So as soon as that first email comes from that coworker who was supposed to have the project deadline to you by 8 a.m. and it's 9.30 a.m. and they say, oh, I kind of forgot, I had a crazy weekend, your immediate reaction is going to be responding in the way of the world because that's what we do if we just try to muster up the own strength on our own and, and you know, remember to, to do something. It's behavior modification. But, but the, the real method of allowing ourselves to step into this transformation of our mind isn't by, again, just strength and, and remembering and setting a reminder, oh, it's, it's, it's 9 o'clock, so i got to do this. But it's as we've often talked about recently, it's a work of intimacy. That as we long and de- uh, desire and go to and depend on God himself to experience and encounter him, when we encounter God himself, encounter truth himself, we will be renewed. We will be transformed. And the byproduct of encountering God will be that our mind will be transformed to that eternal gospel-centric view. So it's not a work of do this, but rather an invitation to work on intimacy with your God. 
And this is where the gift of spiritual disciplines come in that we, again, have been talking about at Mosaic. The gifts of spiritual discipline are what kind of allow us to place ourselves in the spiritual soil and allow God the ability to grow us and fill us in ways beyond what might be possible if we were more focused and caught up on the things of this world. And so we, we talk about the spiritual gifts, things like uh, scripture meditation, scripture memory, uh, study of scripture, praying, fasting, silence, solitude, worship, all these different disciplines that you might think in here, that sounds like really spiritual, like, I mean, for monks and, and weird people that have all kinds of, you know, time and desires that I, I don't think I have. But the reality, again, is if we desire to be gospel-minded people, we have to be renewed by the truth. And again, the truth is only found in Jesus. And so as we work to place ourselves in the position, not the work that will, God will grant us things because he's very happy with us, but the work that places us in relationship in a position to allow God to speak and fill us with truth, we will experience transformation. We will experience our life being transformed and our perspective being transformed. And as we experience through these disciplines of the faith, stepping into deeper and deeper intimacy with God, we will experience that transformation of our mind. And the result of that will produce in us this attitude that no matter what good or bad situation might come, no matter how excited or how frustrated or sad or angry I am emotionally, regardless of anything, I now know that Every single thing before me, every single situation, every single person in front of me for the remainder of my life is the opportunity for the gospel to invade, for the gospel to renew, the gospel to transform, the gospel to free. So we have great, great benefits when we are experiencing this mind transformation that God produces in us. Because as we live as gospel-minded, eternal-minded people, we will experience great peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. I mean, if we look at Paul's life as the circumstances are awful and terrible, peace is one of the greatest characteristics that you would say marks Paul's life. I mean, we might even drug test Paul because he seems really peaceful. But the reality is, it's because in light of his view of his eternal hope and knowing Jesus, doesn't matter what comes his way, good or bad, doesn't matter, cool, just an opportunity for the gospel, just an opportunity for me to demonstrate and declare to love God and to show others how amazing God is. So these are just details. Now again, they can seem so heavy in the moment and they, they can be very heavy but when we stare at God, when we are, are deeper and deeper in intimacy with him, that, that kind of does fade. And we get that perspective, man, eternal versus temporary. That, that when we live with the eternal mindset, we suddenly experience God's faithfulness all the time. Because God's faithfulness doesn't just come when things are good, but God's unchanging. God's faithful all the time. So what would it be like for us to really experience God's faithfulness in any and every circumstance? that we could literally see how God was faithful even if the circumstances, even if our emotions didn't feel that. I want that. I want to experience God's faithfulness. If we live with this mindset, we would be able to have so much greater clarity on mission, on the missional opportunities before us. 
Instead of wondering, uh, is this a person, is this a place where, where the gospel should be spoken or be demonstrated? Instead of that, we realize, man, the gospel is, is relevant and needed by every man, by all people, in all circumstances, regardless of their emotions. So the gospel informs everyone at all times. So the answer is yes. I'm, I'm living. There's a person. There's a moment. Gospel, yes. And so we're not having to distinguish between is this an opportunity or not, but rather, God, how? Not if or when, but how do I live out the gospel? And if we step into this, pursuing God pressing into him, experiencing him, allowing him to transform us, to have our eyes not set on the, the temporal, earthly, worldly things that we so often think are the ultimate, but rather on the eternal gospel realities, that we will experience God working in us and through us in incredibly powerful, beautiful, and gigantic ways. The, the missional lives that we will experience will be more beautiful and powerful than anything we could ever experience in this world that it has to offer. And that we could be a part of seeing God redeem the world. And, and that is something that is worth celebrating and rejoicing over, just as the jailer did. But it's also something that is worth laying down our freedoms for, just as Paul did. As Paul said, man, I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing gift of knowing Jesus, my Lord, my Savior. There's nothing better out there. So just as Truman knew when he had that moment of, which world am I going to choose? Although he probably wanted to choose this world, this, this one that he knew was safe, he said, no, the, the more real, the more life is found in this world. And I'm sure that, that, you know, five minutes after being out in that world, he was banging on the set saying, let me back in. I want in. It's so much better and easier and more comfortable in there. Because that's what it does come at the cost of. Dangerous, unknowns, crazy, wild, difficult at times. But true life found in Jesus, living on mission for him, pressing into him, experiencing him and his spirit transforming our hearts, our lives, and our minds for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have revealed yourself to us. God, we're grateful that just as, as the jailer had his eyes opened to you, God, that you have also shown us our great need for being saved, for being rescued, our souls God, we thank you that you've provided the way through Jesus, through his sacrifice, and that beyond just our souls being rescued, God, you have restored our purpose and redeemed our future. God, that with you, we have a, a huge story that we're able to join in, a story that's not with us as the main character, but with you as the main character. And the main story you are writing is one of redemption, life, and freedom. And so, God, we pray that we would be people who desire to have our eyes set on things that are above. And God, we confess to you, so often we, we do get caught up with the things of this world. God, and, and even at times we desire those things far more than you. God, we thank you that you are patient, that you endure with us, that your love covers even our unfaithfulness to you. God, we pray that we would experience you, God, your continued uh, pulling us towards you, drawing us nearer and nearer to yourself, and that each and every moment that we get with you, 
that we would be transformed by your beauty, that we would be renewed by your truth, that we would be excited to live for you, not for ourselves, but for something so much greater, so much more worth it. God, I pray that you would grant us the courage to step out, laying ourselves down, laying our personal freedoms down, the the entitlements that we logically, rationally can make arguments for. God, instead desiring not to have things our way, but to be submissive and obedient to your leading spirit. God, wherever that might be. God, we are so grateful and honored to be able to call ourselves yours. And thank you for making us yours only by your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.